pretty important. The three stories do kind of link together. Um, so forgiveness and reconciliation. The Archbishop of Canterbury on the Laura Kunzberg show this morning, which some of you will not have had any possibility of watching. He was absolutely brilliant in talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. So that's the first story. The second story um, is that sense that we don't have to nick Jesus because he's on offer. He's available to us. His presence is perfect. And that's what Michael was saying in that short passage. Um, but it's particularly about Bethlehem. We're going to look at and think about Bethlehem because it is the centre of everything. Yep. Um, and I remember when I, I went to Bethlehem once, I've been to the Holy Land once, went for a long weekend to do governor training at the International Christian School, which was a bit of an experience. But um, uh, one of the days when I was there, the principal of the school took me on a journey into Bethlehem. It was one of my scariest experiences for several reasons. One is we parked up on the side of the road, no car park, just parked up and walked to the crossing, to, through the, the huge wall that is around Bethlehem. Um, and we had to go through Israeli security. That was scary enough in itself. And then into this kind of vast area of Bethlehem, well, it's a small place, but you know, vast de- demolition and destruction and so on. And we met uh, a Palestinian Christian, had lunch with him, and then he took us back to his house. Yeah. And he told us a couple of stories, yeah. very briefly. First one he told us was how his wife and children had had to go to America to escape the troubles that they were experiencing. Mm. Not least his um, son, who I think was probably only eight or nine, used to get a taxi the other side of the security Mm. um, into Jerusalem for school. And on one occasion, not long before we'd been there, the taxi had pulled up to let him out and was shot by a sniper. And uh, his son obviously was scared out of his mind because he, yeah. he could have been caught in that. Uh, and the other was that they were constantly bombarded with people throwing rocks. Palestinian Christians are not particularly, even to this day, they're not particularly well respected and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so on, um, from either side of the wall. Yeah. So um, as we were sitting there eating some cake and see mm-hmm. the cake theme goes on, uh, cake and a cup of tea, um, we heard these stones falling on the roof. Mm. Uh, and that was a, not quite an hourly experience, but very regular. Mm. So Bethlehem is, is somewhere I can picture and are deeply concerned yeah. about. And actually, I've got a little video which yep, will yep, give us great. a picture of Bethlehem today. Well, it's a couple of three years ago, but uh, it gives us an idea of what it's like. Yeah, go for it. Palestinian authority. 
combined by Ottomans, British, Jordanians, and Israelis, and that culture mix pours onto the street. There's chicken shawarma and falafel. It's holy and a hotspot for clashes between Palestinians and Outside Bethlehem, the some ways of life haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Technical glitches. I'm not sure what's going on. Just bear with us. Outside Bethlehem, the some ways of life haven't changed. Yeah, probably going to have to decide. Uh, that was that was a bit of a taster. Yeah, it's just, we couldn't watch all the video, but that was a little bit about what Bethlehem looks like today. Yeah, right. So I'd suggest you can Google that if you want to, um, and watch it for yourself. So essentially, what that was uh, trying to portray to us was uh, a town that is uh, full of normality, but still a hotspot for trouble. A town that is, in a way, under siege. A huge wall, we would have seen the wall that surrounds the entire city of Bethlehem and separates Palestine from Israel. A place where religion and politics constantly clash and people, as, a, as an outcome of that, will suffer. But it's also a place where pilgrims must humble themselves and bow low to enter the tourist attraction that is supposedly the place of the birth of Jesus. You would have seen Bethlehem Square and the church there and the tiny door through which people must go. Even President Biden the other week had to bow low to go into the church of the nativity. And then there's a second door and down some stairs or steps into the place where they think Jesus was actually born. This is the claim. And uh, again, you have to bow low. You can't go standing upright. It's almost as though this most significant place in the history of the world and the Jewish faith and Christianity requires us to humble ourselves to approach. We sing of this place each and every year. I think we will be singing, assuming the technical stuff works, <laughs> a little later. O little town of Bethlehem, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It's Bethlehem where it all got underway. As one writer puts it, the historical setting for the world's greatest birth appears in one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible. So I want us to think for a moment at Bethlehem at the centre of history, of our history. And here's how it reads, just for a few moments. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, God said to Samuel the prophet, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But before even that happened, do you remember the story of Ruth 
traveling from Moab with her mother-in-law. And she arrived back in Bethlehem, well, Naomi arrived back in Bethlehem with Ruth. At the time, Bethlehem was recovering from a famine. This town whose name means house of bread would become the hometown of Jesse. His son would become King David. And so the genealogy of this family into which Jesus was born began. He who is himself, or he declared himself to be the bread of life from the house of bread through the line of King David. The end of the book of Ruth, it says then grandma, well it doesn't say grandma, it says Naomi, took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, whose great, 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 26 times, 28 times grandson was Jesus. The rest, they say, is history. She looked into the face of this baby who was to become king. As we were thinking this morning, uh, Simeon and Anna looking into the face of the king of kings in the narrative of the unfolding Christmas story. I think it's absolutely fascinating how places and people who were significant generations ago make a difference in our time and will in the future. And it's certainly true in this narrative of uh, the line of Jesus. I kind of wonder if you can recall places or people, not just in your lifetime, but before your lifetime, that are significant in the way in which they've influenced you and others around you. My grandfather, uh, I only heard this story three or four years ago, my, grandfa my grandfather's father, I think it was, um, was in the tiny ham a tiny hamlet in Cot the Cotswolds. And it was during World War II, so probably my grandfather. And, and, and he was found preaching to crowds of people who came to visit a bomb, bomb crater that had been caused by a German bomb. Just look at that little story and that place and my feelings for that place and I see something of a legacy. But I wonder if you can think of such a place or experience. But more important than that, what kind of legacy are we leaving behind us for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and onwards? Here in Westcliff, in South End City, in Essex, in our lifetime. Because although, this morning I think Tom talked about us having 100 grandchildren, not me personally, uh, I think the 100 was an overstretch. <laughs> but the people that come after us, what sort of legacy are we leaving? What are we planting? Um, is it just our social media account? Or is there something that goes deeper? Because what we see with Bethlehem is a legacy at the very centre of history and in the coming of Jesus. My second of only three short points is this. Bethlehem is at the heart of the first advent. I've got a subtitle for this one that is um, uh, Roman Emperor and His Own Goal. I thought I'd make a small football analogy there. Uh, because the emperor did 
actually score an, an own goal. If he had not issued a decree that everyone returned to their hometown, then there would have been little or no reason for Mary and Joseph to make that journey from Nazareth to their hometown. But they did. And they arrived in the nick of, nick of time to give birth to Jesus. Unknown to Caesar Augustus, prophecy was being fulfilled in that moment and on that journey. Ironically, it seemed to take about two to four years for his decree to be fully complied with. When the time was right, timing is everything, isn't it? As the pregnancy reached its full term. And isn't it just incredible that 700 years before, the prophet Micah had said, but you, Bethlehem Epaphra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He's prophesying this place as the primitive maternity ward for the most inconspicuous birthplace of the ruler of all. So every believing Jew ought to have been able to recognize his coming as the start of everything that had been prophesied, that they were looking for. The signs were there. The prophecies were being fulfilled. I say that, but I have enormous sympathy with them. If I ever go, whenever I go to London, you have this choice, don't you, if you want to get around. Do you go on the bus or do you go on the tube? And the tube is often a long, much longer journey than the bus, and you don't see anything because you're in a tube underground. So sometimes we've tried to go on the bus, and I've got the walking app on the phone, and uh, you should be able to find the right bus stop going in the right direction, but the time is I've ended up at the wrong place, the wrong bus stop, and gone on the wrong uh, bus in the wrong direction. It's just not that easy to to recognise what the signs are trying to tell you. Anyone got sympathy with that? I think one or two. So I don't blame them for not being able to read the signs in the way that we can now. But the fact is it was all prophesied, all the details of uh, Jesus coming, the Christmas narrative. And as it unfolds, Mary in her song, the Magnificats, the angels, the shepherds, and eventually the wise men sang, bowed their knees, and brought gifts to the one who would later be declared not just a king, but the king of kings. And yet his also significant birth in Bethlehem was marked by poverty and homelessness, no room in the inn, a refugee that's fled to Egypt, and absolute humility in every way on his part. In the words of one of Grand Kendrick's Easter songs, no scenes of stately majesty for the King of Kings. Or as Paul puts it in uh, 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 the letter to the Philippians, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human 
likeness. Astonishing, isn't it? He's centre stage, he's in the spotlight of the star, but there's no ego, there's no pride, there's no self-promotion, there was absolute humility. He's just a little babe in the arms of his mother. Our Christmas, by the way, uh, there's another baby. Fortunately, it's not a grandchild, it's a great nephew, but a little baby to share in our Christmas story. But no one like this baby, this ruler to come. And that's my third point. Bethlehem is at the crux of the matter for all of time. Because of the Roman decree, a crowded town bursting at the seams, little or no amenities available. And without the support of her mother, this teenage mum pushed one final time and the God of eternity landed unceremoniously into time. And as we heard read last evening, amongst all the other readings, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is what Micah's prophecy pointed us to, the most humble birth in the place that he envisaged and spoke of. But Jesus was not only coming amongst us as a baby, nor was he only coming to live for those 30 plus years. Neither was he just to come and and die on a cross. All of that is true. And all of that uh, Easter message of it, the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection and then the ascension is all part of it. But there's more to this story. The enormity of this story is beyond our wildest dreams. He has a glorious destiny. But you, Bethlehem, Epathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of of the earth. He is not just a ruler, he is the ruler yet to come. That's the message of Advent, isn't it? We're not just looking for the next five, seven days to celebrate the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem. We're looking to celebrate and think about and reflect on and prepare for the return of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think it's quite important in the year that we lost a queen and gained a king, that we would not confuse Jesus with a constitutional monarch. The supreme king of kings and lord of lords, as this prophesied ruler is described elsewhere, will rule in righteousness across the entire planet and set up his new, new home, his new kingdom, his, the new heavens and the new earth. We shouldn't either uh, contrast or or, uh, apply the idea of world domination that has been the ambition of many leaders over the centuries. There are instances where the disciples thought that that was the purpose of Jesus being there. He was going to deal with the uh, Romans and he was going to release Israel from the bondage that they were under. But that was not what Jesus came for. He came for this bigger, longer term 
picture into which we will now fit. Napoleon Bonaparte put it like this, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself have founded great empires, but on what did those creations rest? Upon force. But Jesus founded his on love. Jesus Christ, by some mysterious influence, draws the hearts of men and women towards him that thousands at a word would rush through fire and flood for him, not counting their lives dear to themselves. I know men, he said. And Jesus Christ was more than a man. Yes, indeed he was. The crux of this Bethlehem birth is found in the bigger picture of Micah that Micah prophesied. Or Paul wrote about, as I complete the poem from Philippians chapter two, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. See, the future of this tiny infant was yes to face death resurrection, and resurrection but he is to experience and we are to witness and be part of his exaltation. So in a way in Advent, we have a mashup of the first coming and the second coming, the expectation that we have of Jesus. Out of you, says Micah, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. Now Isaiah Chapter 9 unpacks the prophecy, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. So if you like, the crux of the matter is that in the distance, there is a final destiny, a future destiny for this ruler in a manger, a king who will restore the beauty of the creative order and rule the world we can be confident of this because everything about his first coming was fulfilled to the letter. So why on earth wouldn't everything about his second coming be fulfilled to the letter? So if that's what happened that first Christmas as Jesus began that journey uh, by coming into the world, as he stepped into the world to bring, yes, his presence his forgiveness, that reconciliation with God, we can have great hope. The Archbishop tweeted on the 11th of December, when Jesus is present, we are restored, our world is renewed, and our hopes are fulfilled. And our longing is that each of us will enter into that knowledge and experience of our hope being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That we will find that hope in the Christmas narrative, in the celebration of the birth of Jesus, but in all that he came to bring in the longer term as we serve him uh, day by day. And we want others to experience that. That's why immediately following Christmas, on Tuesday the 10th, we will begin that short course, just three weeks, Hope Explored. Because we want people to discover the hope that is found in the person of Jesus. Three evenings is not a lot to give. And it's not the hugest invitation to give, give out, is it? So our encouragement to you is to 
find out what it's about. We're going to show you a video in just a second and uh, to invite somebody because you can only really come if you bring somebody unless you're not a Christian and you want to explore hope yourself. So uh, do have a think about that over the next 10 days, two weeks because uh, it'll soon come around. Great opportunity to discover hope explored. If we could see the video, please. There are few emotions more powerful than hope. It's a spark inside you that brings a smile to your lips, a light that shows on your face, a feeling that lifts your head and pulls you forward. These days, hope like that often feels hard to come by. Maybe you experience a shared but a real hope is what Christianity is to a joyful expectation of the future, based on true events in the past, which changes everything about our lives. Hope is a peace stand together. to 